Welcome to Leave Your Mark, where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page at Scott G. Langston. My goal is to create a community of people who take every opportunity to live high-performing lives. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Reconditioning has gone completely virtual. We've taken both our Level 1 and Level 2 courses and loaded them onto an online platform so that you can digest the power of this amazing operating system from the comfort of your home. We combine this recorded video experience with live Zoom labs to bring all the principles and practices of reconditioning to life through applied case study. In turn, you walk away with how to best use this language of common practice to bring the worlds of therapy and performance together in one powerful approach that creates lasting change in your client's performance. This fall, ReconditioningHQ.com is launching a complete experience package that brings all of the video teachings together with a powerful mentorship program and a weekly community touchpoint so you can grow as the reconditioning revolution grows. We are truly excited about the possibilities. We believe that success in any venture begins with the right mindset. We know that the statistics for burnout in human performance are significant and that many of our colleagues face questions every day about personal fulfillment and living their best life. This is why we've started a landmark program for human performance professionals called Empower You. This program is all about crafting your best life, living purposefully and enjoying the fruits of your impassioned labor. We start our next quarter in September and we'd love to have you along for the ride. For more information about reconditioning courses or our amazing Empower You program, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 Canadian off the program of your choice. Understatement alert, for sports performance coaches and proactive healthcare professionals, the last six months have been very challenging. We are now seeing the permanent changes in our profession, how our services are delivered, are affected, and we must adapt. Providing safe and effective health and fitness coaching has never been more needed, yet never been more uncertain. Matrix Fitness Canada wants to help you in your journey. Matrix Fitness is a premier brand of fitness equipment designed for organizations, professionals, and exercisers alike. If you are refreshing your facility, they can help. If you are in need of setting up clients with their home gym space, they can help. The Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador Program is designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada Ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.Turner at jhtcanada.com. Welcome to our newest Leave Your Mark sponsor, Rep Performance. Rep Performance is a web application founded by NHLers Nick Foligno and his strength and conditioning coach, Callan McGibbon. Understanding the importance of the developmental stages and their impact on long-term athlete development, they launched an online performance for coaches, trainers, or teachers that would instill a foundation of fitness, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, and today I have the privilege of speaking with Louise Burke. 
Louise is a sports dietitian with nearly 40 years of experience in the education and counseling of elite athletes. She worked at the Australian Institute of Sport for 30 years, first as head of sports nutrition and then as chief of nutrition strategy. She was the team dietitian for the Australian Olympic teams for the 1996 to 2012 Summer Olympic Games. Her publications include over 350 papers in peer-reviewed journals and book chapters, and the authorship of edit- and or editorship of several textbooks on sports nutrition. She is an editor of the International Journal of Sports Nutrition and Exercise Metabolism. Louise was a founding member of the Executive of Sports Dietitians Australia and is a director of the IOC Diploma in Sports Nutrition. She was awarded a Medal of Order of Australia in 2009 for her contribution to sports nutrition. Louise was appointed as chair in sports nutrition in the Mary Mackel McKillop Institute of Health Research at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne in 2014 and took up this position in a full-time capacity in 2020. Above all her accomplishments professionally, she is a partner with her husband, John, and mother of her son, Jack. I am honored to have her on the show today. Welcome, Louise. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. And I started all those things when I was five, if you're trying to work out how old I am. (laughs) You have accomplished a lot, my dear, and that uh, we will get into uh, how that feels at times when you have a, a resume uh, or your your bio read to you in some sense. But uh, before we get into that, when you were five, um, where were you living in Australia and what were you dreaming of being? Oh, well, look, well, this is very funny. I was, I was living in Ballarat and I was either dreaming of being a nun or I was dreaming of kicking the winning goal for the St Kilda Football Club's next premiership. Um, (laughs) Neither of those things have happened, but I am working at Australian Catholic University, so I guess I've partly fulfilled that um, that dream. (laughs) What attracted you to, well, let's go on, let's bifurcate that and and understand why why the, the interest in being a nun and then why the interest in being the soccer player, but... We'll start with the uh, no, first well, it's, one. It's, it's Australian rules football, and it's um, oh, okay. the most wonderful game, and I'm completely besotted with my Saints team. Mm. Um, they've only won one premiership in 125 years of the competition, and so to be a Saints supporter is to develop tolerance for pain and frustration, and I think that's a really good way to prepare for life. <laughs> and, uh, I'm not sure about the nun thing. I think it was just because, you know, when you go to a Catholic school, you look up the nuns and they look so wonderful in their um, habits and I just thought that um, that's what I wanted to be. But as I grew up, I quickly realised that it wasn't going to take me to the places I wanted to go. <laughs> um, and so I moved on. Were you um, sort of a a little a, a bit a bit of a loner in as a, as a kid did you do your own thing or did were you highly influenced by your family around you what was the driver of of who you you were becoming as you were a kid and growing into your adolescence so to speak yeah look, that's a great question and i've got a terrific family we're um there's five children and we're all sort of roughly eight um 18 months apart so there were a lot of us growing up um and we were all really good friends. And so, um, you know, my family's really close still these days. Um, I live in Canberra and the rest of my family's in Melbourne. So um, with COVID, we don't see a lot of each other. 
But one of the things that we do do a lot together is go to the football when we can to watch Australian Rules Football and the Saints. And there's been so many different activities that have been shared pursuits. All my brothers and sisters have um, had different sporting goals. Often we've um, done things together. My brothers do triathons um, or had done triathons when I was doing them. We've run marathons together. My parents are, you know, fabulous people and they're still, um, you know, um, healthy and and um, actively involved in family and, and exercise too. And mm. so I didn't realise that other people didn't have that same sort of experience of growing up in a, a really tight-knit family and, you know, having... Um, family members as friends uh, mm. as well as um, as relatives. What do you think that contributed to where you are now in terms of, you know, whether it's the the sense that you had the comfort in having your family behind you or, you know, what, what were the things that that, that nucleus of a, a, a strong family you feel now looking back has helped you be who you are today? I'm the oldest, so um, I think there's a sense of being pushed to do things um, because my brothers and sisters are, are close in age behind me. I always had the feeling that, um, you know, that, that there was a push to do things. You know, I can remember, um, you know, being the, we all wanted to be the first person who could swim 50 metres or jump off the high diving board or, you know, some sort of um, pursuit like that and you had to keep doing things because otherwise the <laughs> other guys would overtake you if you didn't. Um and, you know, we did a, a lot of sporty things together. We certainly um, bonded through many sporting activities, both doing and, and watching. Mm-hmm. And my parents um, developed in us a very strong sense of community and loyalty. My mum and dad are still very active in the in the church groups um, in Ballarat. And, I, you know, I think I grew up feeling that um, you need to be part of a team to both be successful but also to, um, you know, see life for all its possibilities. And, mm. you know, when you when you talk about the achievements um, in, you know, my CV that you just read out, I think sometimes, well, I'm so lucky to have that attached to me, but really that, that's a, a set of achievements that um, come from group and teamwork and I'm lucky enough to sometimes be recognised for, um, you know, having been part of that, mm. but really none of it would be possible or fun if it wasn't for, you know, being done with a whole group of people who um, have shared in those accomplishments. No, that's a nice um, outtake. I want to unpack that a little bit later, actually. Um, so you you were into sport growing up. What is there one that in particular that catches you as a, as a kid that you, that you play or do, or, or are you just kind of involved in a lot of different activity and exercise? Look, I I was completely besotted by football, Australian rules football growing up. And I can remember when one of the key points in my life was suddenly realizing that as a girl, I wasn't going to be able to play for the mm. professional Australian football league, um, that, that was that was a, a shocking moment. Um, I'm pleased to say now that there is a well-developed um, football league for women, Australian rules football, and um, that's you know really been flourishing. And, and some of Australia's female team sports are um, you know more successful than their male compatriots these days. Um, when I was at university, I started running. I was during the the running boom because I had been playing in number of different other team sports and um, just keeping fit but um, started doing some fun runs and then 
that progressed to triathlons. I did the Ironman um, a number of times. And as I've sort of um, started to need to be a bit more efficient with the amount of time that I spend on my own exercise, I've got back into running and um, have below over the last decade got back into running a couple of marathons a year using the opportunity to do the big city marathons as a sort of a goal, not just of finishing the race but getting the entry and getting myself there and mm-hmm. getting to the finish line and in, enjoying the whole razzmatazz of the big city marathons. And um, so I've always been active but, at, you know, from time to time I've liked to channel that into some sort of a competitive sport or, or a, you know, sporting activity where I get to be part of other people's um, activities as well as doing my own. So, mm. you know, a lot of the work that I do with other athletes trying to prepare them for events, you learn from their experiences, you teach them things, and then you get to practice it with your own activities. Are you, uh, would you describe yourself as fiercely competitive inside? Um, I think I am. Um, mm-hmm. I know my, I know um, strengths and weaknesses. Um, I, I like to set out and do achievements, and in some of those things I'm quite happy to do them, um, you know, as a, as a, a single activity. Um, a lot of the running that I do now when I do my training is by myself just because of COVID or just because I need to put it into some sort of nook or cranny of um, the day where it might suit to meet up with other people. Hmm. But um, I do enjoy being able to, um, you know, um, do some of the exercise that I do with, with some high-level athletes. So I've got um, one of the groups of athletes that I work with are race walkers and I really enjoy the camaraderie of race walking, but I also really enjoy the fact that I can run at their walking speed. So I can <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, doesn't, that doesn't say much about my running. But it does, it does mean that I get to hang out with really good athletes and observe what they're doing while they're doing it, which is um, part of, you know, learning a bit more about how to help them or learning a bit more about what makes them tick to be able to um, find the ways to engage with them. But it's also good for, for my running and sometimes when I'm there with them and, you know, I I'm, I'm, might be having a, a, not, a not a terribly good day, um, I can distinguish differences between um, their competitiveness where they'll go till they fall over versus <laughs> my ability to probably stop sensibly. So while I'm competitive, I... Um, I do have a sense of my limit, own limitations mm. <laughs> and I'm probably more sensible than some of those, you know, really, really successful athletes. I, I for wonder, you know, um, how I would go if I was an elite athlete and whether I'd be prepared to live out all my successes and failures in the public eye, you know, mm. you know when I have a bad day or when I'm, something doesn't work in, in my areas of um, activity, you know, I get upset about it and, and think of ways in which I can try and resurrect the situation or do it again. But um, I don't know how I would cope with doing that with 100,000 people yelling at me or, you know, 6 million people watching me on television or mm. every part of you know, my life being um, filled by someone. So oh yeah, I, have, I, have, I have understanding about my competitiveness, but I can see that it's not as driven as some of the other people I know. Mm. I'm curious how either it served you 
from an academic standpoint or how much your academic tenacity has served you in your athletic pursuit. So you know, obviously you ran marathons and you said you did triathlon. So did achieving those things or making those things happen sort of support your, you know, achievement and growth uh, from an academic standpoint or did they serve one another or did, or was there no relationship at all? If you follow where I'm going with that. Yeah, look, they interact in so many different interesting ways, I think. Um, when I started doing triathlons in Australia, I mean, I entered nine men as my first triathlon. I didn't realise that was an unusual thing to do. I just <laughs> heard about it and thought, well, that sounds like something I could do. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, what the hell? And I didn't realise. I, I actually got in on my first. I was part of the lottery that was um, accepted. And so there I was going off to... Um, to Kona to do the Hawaiian Ironman and, um, you know, I didn't know any other triathletes. <laughs> I, I, I'd done a triathlon before. Um, but part of doing it was really that exploration of how physiology worked, how performance worked and the practical ways of being able to use nutrition to improve that. And, you know, back then, at least in Australia, there really weren't any sports foods. Um, mm. And even even at the Ironman, I mean, most of the things at aid stations were bananas and, mm. and oranges and, and guava jelly sandwiches. And I, I had to find out what guava jelly was and have some sent over from Hawaii to Australia so I could practice eating guava jelly sandwiches in some of my training sessions. And <laughs> for me, the whole thing was just an N equals one research tool. <laughs> <laughs> It, you know, it was yeah. a fascinating time to be part of sports nutrition as it was developing and to, um, you know, to see how both you could push the human body to perform, you know, push my human body particularly because it's not exceptionally gifted at, at um, athletic pursuits. But um, I've been lucky in that um, I'm not getting any slower. So <laughs> I'm becoming more competitive as I get older, which is really <laughs> Um, you know, other people, other people hate getting older because you know they um, they don't think they'll ever be able to achieve all those things they did earlier in their life. But I'm sort of coming into my own now, and I'm thinking, gee, by 80, I could win the New York Marathon. <laughs> so, <laughs> in my age group, in the New York Marathon, anyway. Um, so, but the other way that's really interacted for me is that um, I use a lot of my exercise time to either think. So I'm often, you know, doing stuff by myself and using it to, um, to to listen to podcasts like yours and, you know, think about things or maybe I'm writing something in my head and and um, thinking about it as I'm running along. Or, as I said, I'm with other athletes that I work with and I'm cluing into what they're doing, whether it's so I can give them feedback uh, on things they could do better or is it, it's just about learning what makes them tick. You know, sometimes mm. when people are exercising, you see those unguarded moments. You see them at their worst. You see them at their best. <laughs> and I'm really fascinated by human, you know, behaviour and interactions and um, you know, when you're wanting to work with someone, trying to find the best ways to relate to them and to, um, you know, to help them mm. is sometimes is, you know, you, you learn those little insights by being at the coalface, not having them come into your office and sit down and have that formal consultation. Mm-hmm. How did you do in that first that first foray? Into, I, I'm amazed that you went and did the, the, the real Ironman in Kona and stuff for your first endeavor. Did you, did mm. you finish it? I absolutely did. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. And wow. I was... <laughs> 
<laughs> I was so lucky though because um, I was kind of at the time and there weren't a lot of um, females participating in, in the Ironman and um, as I didn't realise there was a whole organisation around triathlon and part of um, the experience of, of getting to the Kona was that, you know, I learned that there was an Australian group that was organising a tour and so I um, went with them. But um, it turned out that there were, there were so few Australian women that were going that when they, um, the International Triathlon Union, as it was just forming, decided to have a um, competition within the Kona Ironman to have like a, com- a country competition and have um, teams made up from all the different countries that were represented, I, I got to... Um, I got to be on the Australian team. <laughs> I was on the first Australian um, triathlon team and we came second, so, which was mostly due to the efforts of the other females. But how about that? I came home with a trophy. Like, what could be better than that? Um, I was just extraordinarily lucky to be at the right place at the right time. And that really is a, is a theme of my whole career, that a lot of stuff that I've done has just been absolute luck. <laughs> Well, they say preparation and uh, opportunity are what luck really uh, <laughs> creates. So I guess you've been prepared when you've needed to be. You, um... yeah, but I've also I've also been the beneficiary of some really kind people. Like you know, mm. as I said, a lot of it's luck, and that luck has been enabled by somebody else mm. who had probably no idea of what they were doing or what it meant to me by the actions that they took. But, you know, sometimes I think what was, what, how did I get my first gig in sports nutrition or how did I even get interested in the whole thing? Because back when I studied dietetics, you know, there was not such a thing as sports nutrition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the really lucky things that happened to me was that um, I wrote to Trevor Barker, who was the, the best player in the St Kilda Football Club. And so he was, he was sort of like a... Um, you know, a David Beckham, but in a mm-hmm. in a crummy football club. And I wrote, I wrote to him, you know, as a as a um, older teenager, saying that I thought nutrition was really important for sports performance, and perhaps that was what was missing for the Saints, and mm-hmm. that might help them win their their next premiership. And uh, he he must have got thousands of letters every week from girls. I, I, seriously, he was a heartthrob. But he gave my letter to the club doctor and the club doctor contacted me and invited me to come down and, and do some work with the club um, in my first year as a dietitian, just really graduated. So, I mean, again, how lucky was that? If that wow. hadn't have happened, you know, maybe I would have um, gone on and become the nun because... <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what instigated your interest in nutrition? Like, what? how do you find yourself... Um, actually having that opinion and sharing it with with this uh, Look, all-star again, footballer. Yeah, again, it was really luck because um, I, I didn't have very good careers advice at school. You know, most of the people in my my um, school went to either do nursing or teaching or if you're you know, really clever, you did law or medicine. And I was going to do medicine and I just... It didn't kind of grab me, but I thought, well, you know, I got the marks, so I guess I should do it. And then at the very last moment, I decided that I would be taking up the place of someone at university who really wanted to do medicine if I did that. 
And so I just started a, a science degree and in the year that I started it, um, another university in Australia had just changed its um, status from being a, a, an institute of technology and became the university and it got publicity around that. And one of the courses that it had as a specialty was dietetics, but I had never even heard that you could study nutrition. And I suddenly looked at that and thought, that's what I should be doing. And so I transferred in the middle of the year to that university. And even then I studied for the rest of the year and it was only then in the second year, it was quite a small course in a, in a small university. And the um, course convener of dietetics invited all the students home to his place for for a lunch on a weekend and I noticed, you know, that he had this wonderful spread. His wife had really gone all out and produced lots of food for hungry students. And there was Richard Reed, the, the coordinator, and he just had a plate, a plate of lettuce and cheese. And I said to him, "That's you know, don't you like your wife's cooking?" And he said, "No, I'm um, I'm I'm doing a marathon next weekend, and um, the Scandinavians have just published this paper showing that if you." deplete your muscle glycogen levels by having a low-carbohydrate diet for a couple of days and then switch to having high-carbohydrate, you can supercompensate glycogen. And that light just went off in my head. I thought, so? You know, this stuff that you can do with nutrition that makes sport even better. And so I... Um, I twisted his arm and, and uh, uh, made him allow me to drop some of the units in the course and take up some new ones that were just individual research units to uh, hang out with him and pick his brains. Mm. And that was really the way it started for me. And, again, it was just a complete lucky um, conversation that um, set off something. And prior to that, I had absolutely no clue of what I wanted to do and it was... It was um, you know, anything could have happened to have taken me on a on a different pathway, but something just luckily, you know, s- s- fell into place. And when it did, I knew that was right. What did you fall in love with uh, in the subject or the idea of the subject? Uh, yeah, well, look, I, I I love I love food and I love um, <laughs> people's relationship with food because mm-hmm. it's more than just you know nutrients and and what it does in terms of the sort of the physiological processes and by, by um, um, chemical processes in the body. So that's part of it. But um, I'm really just fascinated by sport and just how clever the body is and, you know, what you can train it to do and just the joy that that gives to the person who's doing it but also to other people who are observing it. So mm. I really, I really just you know, love what sport can do to elevate us and um, the fact that nutrition can have an input into that just, you know, seems to, for me, just be that perfect marriage. Mm -hmm. When you look back now with the, you know, the glasses of today, so to speak, uh, you know, you were cut from the same generation in the late 80s, early 90s and into the 90s was kind of this um, period for, you know, sport performance and sports science sort of starting to get its teeth into, you know, the performance sport world a little bit. And like you said, when you'd first gone to the first Kona, you're, there really wasn't much in the way of, um, you know, technical nutrition support, et cetera. And, 
So when you look back at that, like what was that, that open canvas um, to explore? Was that exciting for you or do you even, did you even recognize it as, as so when you were there? Oh, look, it was always exciting, but it's never lost its excitement. It just mm-hmm. seems to build extra layers. And, <laughs> you know, for me back then, the excitement was that there was an importance at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I look back now and I think, gosh, that was really rough drawing in, you know, we were sort of just crazily painting stuff, whereas now we're into that very fine-tuned idea where everything needs to be individualised and personalised and periodised and made very practical for the athlete's environment. So, you know, we're just building up the detail in, in um, so many different ways now. And so it's, it's I've never got to the point where I'm bored, where I can think, well, you know, my job's done or there's nothing left that, you know, sparks an interest. They're just, if anything, it seems to be accelerating with all the new possibilities. And, you know, part of it's the understanding of the fundamental biochemistry and um, nutrition, but also, you know, sometimes it's all about being really clever with the implementation of things and so being really practical or thinking through some of the challenges that different sporting events and the environments in which they're done create. Um, and then coming up with some kind of a solution that makes it work on the day. That's, you know, there's still so much to do and, and, you know, so much to keep your brain ticking over. What was an early project that you worked on, either from a research perspective or the support of an athlete you know, through the work that you were doing that real, you look back on fondly as sort of a, you know, a watershed moment for you professionally? done research as a as a hobby I think you know it's really just providing an evidence base for um, being sure that what we were doing was a, a good idea um, I've never this is the first time I've ever had an academic job and, and that the metrics of you know success are quite um, different now in terms of um, you know I'm still interested in making athletes go higher faster and stronger but now um my employer also is interested in citations and altmetrics and a whole lot of new things that I've never had to think about before. Um, so really the whole area of research that I've done has been driven by, you know, where do I think there's a gap mm-hmm. um, and, you know, what could we do with nutrition to, um, to fill that gap? And so, um, you know, part of it's the same, but other, the other thing that's been part of it is just being able to interact with other people that I've really enjoyed working with. And I've been mm. so lucky that people have been so generous with their time. Um, Mark Hargraves is one of my very earliest collaborators and you know, he's been wonderful to allow me to come into his lab and learn techniques and meet some of his colleagues. And um, Ron Morn's another one who's been really instrumental in, in um you know, championing my career by providing so many opportunities. And then, of course, when I met um, John, my husband, you know, he's opened other avenues and been, you know, very supportive and his, you know, his um, own research interests and mine align in so many ways. He's doing more with the outputs in terms of health um, interactions with exercise and nutrition. But, you know, we still have many areas where we've got sort of common interests and now I'm in the lucky position where I've got so many of these um, young um, young scientists coming out and they've been part of these um, supernova series that we've 
been running over the last couple of years with um, the race walkers. And it's just been so much fun to see these young people coming through who are so capable. Like I, I look back, you know, to when I was 25 and doing the Ironman for the first time <laughs> and it was clueless. But, you know, these these guys come in and they just they give blood, sweat and tears to um, to work on these really hairy, complicated projects that we dream up. And they are just so inspiring. You know, they, they are the, the energy, the, the, you know, the fact that we were able to have so much fun interaction and we learn so much from each other at, at these um, research camps is, is part of what, you know, makes them really extraordinary. And so we we um, often get some really nice scientific data and we can further the understanding of sports nutrition. But, you know, the whole interaction and the serendipitous outputs that, that come from this through the, the friendships and, and the, the bonding and the um, relationships you build with each other and the athletes and coaches, it's just, you know, it's, it's just mm-hmm. an extraordinary way of being able to to do your work. And so one of the outputs is the, the research, but really it's just a sort of a means to the end. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, you you are at the AAS for, you know, many, many years, obviously, and you see it go through lots of different sort of iterations and change. Um, what were the, you know, obviously you could probably write a book on what you saw, but what you know, if you could dial it down over that period of time, what was what was inspiring about it? What was challenging about it? And and maybe even what was disappointing about it at times you know, in your yeah. experience over there? Look, look I, I have been so lucky to have had the best of the AIS, you know, on my resume and that I lived through the times when life was really simple. There were a small group of sports scientists who collaborated with the world's best coaches and some incredible athletes, mm-hmm. and we really were a team. You know, the the um, the bureaucracy or the red tape and all the other stuff that we live with now um, just wasn't there. And so, you know, the things I've learnt from just observing how coaches work or athletes think is just a privilege to be part of. And um, it's not just the AIS. I think in lots of ways we've engineered some of those really important things out of life these days because I, you know, I think back to the very early days of, of the AIS and I'd go away for months with a, a swimming trip to, um, to an altitude camp and there'd be um, myself, a sports scientist, the coach and some athletes and you're away for a month. And there was no such thing as a laptop or, or any way of taking work with you. You know, you you took a book for recreation. <laughs> and, you know, you sat around at night and you, you just had these fantastic discussions. And the things I learned or just, you know, the, the serendipitous outputs from those, um, those times where you just spent time together and developed the relationships and, you know, learned inside and out each other's brains, that was just incredibly privileged to be part of. You know, these days what we do, you go away on a trip and you're rushing back from dinner to do your emails because you're trying to juggle a million other things and, you know, you don't have those interactions and so we have to have a workshop to put people together to Mm. try and make them happen and it doesn't happen under those circumstances in the same way. So Mm. we just have the luxury of time and the ability just to get on with things and learn from each other without having to be too structured. You know, there's none of this, you know, management KPIs and 360-degree 
you know, um, <laughs> feedback sessions <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. And I understand the business behind all that. Yeah. But gosh, it was much more fun when you just let things happen. Mm. Well, on that note, what is, what, like, I know the, I asked uh, Dana, Jen and Trent for some questions for you and stuff. And I would, I would be remiss if I didn't sort of ask, them, but I know, uh, you know, Jen asked this question about, you know, <clears throat> trying to sort of negotiate through the tension of, you know, different, different camps in the nutrition world, so to speak. And there's so much information out there now. And so how do you distill the signal from the noise now, given, you know, back in the day, like you said, you, you know, you kind of got in the room and had great conversations and now you don't get to do those as much. The conversations are sometimes, you know, not as, not as um, professional on the internet as people are taking shots at one another. So how has that changed for you when you, when you look at it now and, and how do you find your anchor or your, 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 your sense of balance in, in mm. all of this now? Well, I know where the off button is on my phone, which is helpful <laughs> because <laughs> um, look, Twitter's great fun at times and I love just clever, creative stuff and, you know, you find a lot of it there on, you know, lots of different topics, not just nutrition. And I, you know, I also enjoy the, the opportunity that you can share things and, and you know, be able to make things more accessible using platforms like that. But um, oh, just the rudeness and the um, you know lack of civility and um, you know, particularly when it's it's from top down. You know, your president's just the poster child for rudeness on Twitter. I'm sorry to say, and. Not you know, my president. Not... I'm Canadian. He's American. So. <laughs> sorry, yeah, sorry. I, I, I apologise. That, that was a nasty thing. Um, yeah, um, but you know the the whole the whole idea that you could just be so rude to people and and um, and just be so mean and nasty. It's just affronting to me. You know, my mm-hmm. my family. I can you know I can remember my mother saying to this never write anything or never put anything in writing that you wouldn't be proud to have me read. Mm. And that that sticks with me right now today. You know, sometimes you get caught up in the in the conversation and you want to write something smarmy or, you know, sarcastic back to someone. But um, even if I might write it, I never send it because I've just got that filter that stops me. I think of my mother and I think, no, she wouldn't be pleased with that. And so I can stop that. So, look, there's there's fun things about all these new communication platforms and ways in which we can converse, but um, I don't enjoy other aspects of it. And, you know, this whole fake news thing really drives me mad, you know, just the, the fact that people want to see in black and white and that, you know, their truth is more important than, than um, you know, the idea that the world is complex and complicated and more than one truth can be possible. Mm. Um, You know, I I don't like all this shouty stuff at all. Mm. I I don't usually, I don't really want to go into the depths of the, the, the performance side of things with, uh, with you, but I'm just curious, you know, cause I asked Stu Phillips this question too, and I talked to him and I, what is it about nutrition that makes it so controversial? Because it seems to, you know, of, of the different sort of domains of practice, there seem to be some really big camps in it that are almost completely against one another in some sense. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. curious why, 
in, in just intuitively why you feel it's become that way in some sense? Yeah, I think because we all eat, we're all experts, and we all think, <laughs> we all think our own experience is you know the the only one true experience, and so mm. you know I, I I'm less inclined to make any um, commentary around brain surgery or nuclear physics or whatever because it's just not you know within my realm of experience but you know everybody eats as I said so that they feel that um their experience is legitimate and Mm. it's it's interesting you know why it's become so religious though because it really is there's almost you know sort of a a um a divine um background to it all you know somehow Mm. you've been blessed as the chosen one to teach us the truth etc etc it's you know it's it's more than just a cult it's there is there is some sort of religiosity around it and I don't understand where that comes from but you know one of the things that's really fascinating is that people don't understand that there's you know as I said there's more than one truth and that the reason that we're the apex predators on this planet is that humans are incredibly flexible with the way they can tolerate things. You know, we can live in so many different environments and um, although we all think about this paleo diet and what our ancestors eat, there was a million different paleo diets because people adapted to the food environment in which they they were living. And so there's more than one way of, of being able to, you know, be successful and you know, some may be better than others for, for this or that. But, mm. um, you know, we've got to really understand that there's there's context to what we're, um, what we need to think about. You know, there's, there's always situations where one thing might be better than another or scenarios in, in which, you know, something might be more important, but that we're incredibly flexible with, with the way that we can adapt to our environment. Hmm. I like that. So you're born May 21st, right? I didn't say That's right. I did not say the year. <clears throat> so you are a Taurus three. And you're well, perfect. I'm actually I'm actually on the cusp of Gemini, I think. Well, my book says you're Taurus twenty first. Yeah, well it's twenty first, twenty second. The twenty second yeah. is the next one. So you're in my book, Taurus three. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Your purpose is to believe in yourself and take your place as a leader, never losing touch with your sense of humbleness, which comes with the acceptance of fate. There is no great genius without some touch of madness, Edgar Varese. The Taurus three person has his or her own laws, and God help anyone who interferes. When talented, no one can touch them. Burt Bacharach, May 12th, is, an, is a musical league of his own, and singer James Brown, May 3rd. Excessiveness can be exhibited since Jupiter tends to enlarge, expand, or support whatever it encounters. The Taurus three dynamic asks people to own their own importance, that is, to know their beliefs and not to depend on the opinions of others they can be attuned to social change and if truth and justice are their strengths they might find themselves at the helm of a revolution determining their own boundaries is paramount in their growth otherwise they may feel overwhelmed and victimized however if boundaries are overdeveloped the Taurus three may find their beliefs are in a conflict with other others or the law the Taurus threes call the shots however once the ball is in motion. It is out of their hands. If they have chosen wisely, the results will bring home run, home runs. If not, their friends will be writing them in care of a bureau of prisons. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> cool. I like. I always like reading those to people. 
Um, you meet John when in your life? How how far along in your career are you when you guys connect with one another? Yeah, um, so I met in my late 30s. Um, well, we knew of each other because, you know, you read each other's work and it turns out we bumped into a couple of, couple of conferences um, a couple of times. But um, we actually met at a conference in Monaco, which is mm. sort of a magical kingdom, and it was. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we um, our eyes locked and... <laughs> Talked science, <laughs> and then um, yes, went on to um, have wonderful adventures and become parents and do some great collaborations together. What did you fall in love with in him? Oh well, look, there was a bit of the um, you know, he was kind of like the um, George Clooney of sports science. <laughs> and <laughs> no, look, I, I, I liked I liked that he. Um, you know, he was smart. He was interested in some of the areas of exercise science that that I was. That he'd had adventures, and I don't know. We um we shared lots of passions outside our um careers. We he was running at that stage, and we found that we had lots of um, favourite authors in common. And I don't know. It just was the the right time. And so, even though we we're living on different continents, um. Mm. We made it happen, and then, funnily enough, this is um, this is the first time COVID has given us the first opportunity to actually live together in the same house. So <laughs> normally, this is, and we've been married twenty years. Wow! Um, and so normally he lives in Melbourne and I live in Canberra, but um, now we're in the same house, and we've been like that for almost six months. Mm-hmm. So how about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll ask you about that experiment in a few moments. But um, you, like myself, actually had um, your one child later in your in your life. Um, you know, was that a shock? How how did when that o- occurred? How did it rock your world, or did it? Ah, oh, look, it, look, it was it was funny. I never thought I wasn't going to have children, but it just sort of hadn't happened, and then. Um, when we met, it was um, like we're kind of later in life, and it was so lucky that we we're able to um, to have Jack. He turned up very early; he was six weeks <laughs> premature. So he um, already, from the very moment of, of um, arriving, showed us who's boss. <laughs> and we've um, we've had a sort of um, look. It's an unusual um, marriage in the sense that we haven't lived in the same places, but it's worked out really well in the sense that we've both had times when we have. Um, you know, one-on-one relationships with Jack and then with each other. And um, and so Jack's been able to come when there's just a single child, you know, he's so much more mobile in terms of coming away with us on our holidays or to our conferences and he knows a lot of our friends. Um, you know, he, he knows Trent very well and um, so it's been really lovely to be able to share his life in a more intimate way than my family, for example, you know, with five children, you can't have that kind of um, individual relationship. And um, so, you know, I've really loved the the whole experience of, of parenthood. He's a mm. teenager now, so there's a, a few little um, battles, but <laughs> <laughs> um, he's, he's a great kid and, you know, I'm hoping that he's going to have a... Um, a wonderful career and, and life ahead of him as well. He's he's a swimmer, so mm. um, he's following in the exercise pattern. It's um, 
it's sometimes difficult to, you know, let him have all the benefit of our knowledge. He drives John particularly mad because, you know, he, he wants to find his own way with his sport and how he does it. And, you know, so, sometimes um, he'll come to a conference and he's sort of really just stunned to think that someone might come up and ask to have a photo with you or to sign your book or something like that. So um, it'll be interesting to see when he's older whether he looks back on the experience and um, you know, truly understands what, he, what what kind of environment he was growing up in in terms of the, um, the help that we could give him with his sport. Mm. What... Um... What do you look back on as as a mom now has grown in you because of being a mom that makes you different than you were before? Yeah, um, so the the need to be able to compartmentalize your time. So you know, there's just times that I need to be able to give to him um, because John and I um, married and had him very early. Um, you know, obviously there was part of what I needed to do to change my life to be able to be more available to John, but that was very quickly taken over by Jack. Um, and so, you know, now I now I find that I have to be able to, um, you know, be be better at being able to organise so that I have got an adequate time to to spend just with him and just with John and the family, as well as doing the things that um, make me happy. Mm. And it's also interesting to watch the whole development of sport from the ground up because, you know, most of my life I've worked with athletes um, from a certain age or a certain calibre and above. But, Mm. you know, seeing someone start from absolute beginnings and Mm. that pathway through sport's been really interesting to watch both from the development in Jack but also all the systems around Jack in Australia to see whether, you know, they're useful in terms of um, him being able to get the best out of his sport. Mm. How has that challenged you to a degree knowing, like I get, you just mentioned it with his sort of wanting not to be sort of um, oversight by mom and dad so much who are <laughs> the all knowing ones in some sense, but um, how, how have you nav- navigated that with, you know, knowing what you guys know, but then at the same time being mitts off enough to let him sort of just to grow up and be a kid in some sense. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, there's a lot of experiences that you learn from, you know, times when you um, wished you hadn't been quite so, um, you know, demonstrative that you had to do it this way. There's only one way of doing it. But um, it's been also nice um, because, you know, there's been plenty of occasions where either the club with the various sports that he's done, he also plays soccer and water polo. And so there's been quite a few times when his sporting club has invited us to come and give a talk or, you know, share our expertise with the, the whole group and, you know, watching his sort of pride that we can do that or we, we're special in the eyes of, of um, the club's been um, interesting. But also um, Jack just absolutely is besotted with basketball, with the NBA and, mm. um, you know, so I've got friends like Dana and, and um, other colleagues that work with these professional teams and when I can introduce them to Jack and, and you know, um, one of my very good colleagues, Dave Martin, was working with the 76ers who um, Jack now follows. But mm. the fact that Jack can get onto, um, you know, text and WhatsApp communication sometimes with people close to the players or with Dave giving him inside information, you know, Jack thinks that's the best thing that I can do for him. <laughs> so, 
So um, it's nice to be able to sometimes, you know, have that bit of cachet that you can um, impress him with. When you look back at uh, your career and all the different sports events that you've been a part of and, you know, many Olympics, et cetera, is there one particular event or moment in, in particular that you look back on with great reference in the sense that that was something that really inspired you. Our sponsor, Rep Performance, is a web application launched by co-founders Nick Foligno and Callan McGibbon. Their platform is designed for teachers and youth sport coaches with pre-designed testing templates and AI-driven workouts geared to individual needs. They aim to provide every coach the ability to develop fitness for life in the athletes of tomorrow, share their story, and help them ensure no athlete slips through the cracks, and they are equipped to succeed in sport and life. Visit them at repperformanceapp.com today. Our sponsor, Matrix Fitness, produces training tools that focus on improving the training experience for athletes and coaches alike. With equipment that focuses on building speed, power, and explosive performance in most efficient manner, Matrix has partnered with some of the top sporting organizations worldwide. COVID has forced us all to rethink how we are offering our services. With that in mind, Matrix Fitness Canada has created an ambassador program designed to help you expand the reach of your services. This program supports your expertise in supporting home gym design so your clients can have what they need to continue to subscribe to your services. The best part? You can insert yourself into the economic equation as a Matrix Fitness Canada ambassador. For more information on requirements to qualify and the details around their services, please connect with Nikki.turner at jhtcanada.com. Yes, look, I've had some incredibly wonderful experiences to enjoy seeing just the, you know, the most incredible sporting moments. And, you know, sometimes it's just the, the sporting achievement. Sometimes it's you've got some personal insight or relationship with the athlete. And, oh, there are so many that I, um, oh, it's hard to choose one, but perhaps the one that, um, most not most means something to me but um you know it's one that that's relevant right now to the kind of work that I'm doing and that's um Jared Talent's gold medal in um London at the um in the 50k race walking event mm. and I'd come to work with him over that previous um Olympiad period and we'd worked particularly on a nutrition strategy to um increase his fuel intake during the longer races, you know, this was just part of the or the start of the um, interest in more aggressive fueling and race walking was an event because it's done on a loop course and there's an aid station every 2K so that it does have opportunities for nutrition support more aggressively than many other sports. And Jared is, you know, such a, a, a wonderful and very receptive um athlete and so we developed a, a good relationship over that um, period of time and as I said I often go out training with him either on a bike feeding him or um, you know running beside him and and so I'd come to you know recognize both the, um, the you know the race walking you know it's a it's a funny sport because if you said to me in you know 2008 at the Beijing Olympics um go and watch the race walking event I would have thought oh that's a stupid sport and <laughs> I didn't understand I didn't understand it but now I've come to love it for so many reasons you know one because it is so both demanding in terms of nutrition but also supportive in terms of allowing nutrition to be um able to influence performance but I've 
come to know the race walking community so well and there's just such a, a camaraderie and such a generosity of spirit um, amongst all those international athletes and um, Jared's made that um, entree possible for me but um, back in you know 2012 just seeing the sport through his eyes and you know learning something about a sport I hadn't known before and then you know we, we had suspicions about the amount of um, cheating that was going on with certain nations and that it was going to be very difficult for for Jared to um, to win the race, but he executed it perfectly. He came over the, the line, he you know, moved up from seventh to second place in those last um, laps of the event because we think of the, um, the aggressive fueling strategy that he tried. Mm. And he was just, you know, ecstatic when he crossed the line. And then in 2016, he finally got to get the gold medal that he truly deserved because um, the Russian walker was disqualified and the medal was handed on to him. And so he finally got his moment in the sun. And, you know, it was lovely <laughs> to have been part of that experience, just, just the amount of patience and commitment it took to, you know, to, to, to be part of race walking, which isn't well um, supported. You know, there's, you don't get the same sort of accolades in race walking as say a marathon runner would do or professional sport, but um, you know, the, the race walkers do an amazing job in, in promoting their sport and, and, you know, doing really wonderful training and, and all the right things from the nutrition standpoint. And um, I love the fact that they've, you know, so supportive of each other. So I really have enjoyed just watching that whole story of, of Jared's career mm. and um, he's hoping to, to, to go to, to Tokyo. He's won medals now at um, three Olympics. And so to go to Tokyo, hopefully if it's on next year, it would be wonderful to see him back up there on the podium. Mm. Well, you know, you've, you, you have, have had such a, a fulfilling and powerful career at this point, And you're now, as you said, going more into an academic uh, position. Um, what, what is the next horizon for you? What do you, where, where do you want your career to go at this point? What are you trying to achieve with it? Well, um, one of the reasons that I've been so lucky to have this opportunity at Australian Catholic University is that even over the last um, four or five years at the AIS, um, the resources for doing research had become you know, quite sparse in Australia in general, but ACU had um, had come and offered the opportunity to collaborate with us and it was their generosity that's made possible these um, these new research camps that we've been running and so now that will be my sort of full-time career being able to look into ways to do various types of research with elite athletes and promote performance and so I'm you know really excited about the opportunities that we will hopefully have to um to continue doing research camps but doing other sorts of research we've got some ideas about um you know new barriers and horizons to um to address both in terms of the theme of what we're interested in studying, but also the methods of being able to do it. So um, I'm, I'm looking forward to trying some new things. I, I really miss the AIS life and I miss having the, the large team of wonderful sports dietitians that were part of AIS sports nutrition. But mm. um, I'm looking forward to assembling, you know, a new 
team of these younger sports scientists coming through and sometimes they won't be all part of ACU but there'll be people that um, come and join us for a, a research camp and so sometimes it's good to go back to being small and and mm. a bit more um you know dynamic and ability you know able to um to be agile mm. um and it's almost perhaps like the back back to the days of the AIS when there's less structure around what you do and more opportunity to um, to go where the exploration leads you. So that hopefully will be um, part of things. But I think um, the more collaborations I can do and joining forces with um, some of my wonderful colleagues will be um, part of the future. And hopefully COVID will allow us to get sport back on the agenda and athletes being able to do what they do best and, um, you know, maybe the time we've had it off will allow us to be more reflective of better ways of doing things, both um, in terms of the science, but also in the way we behave with each other. Nice. When's when's your next marathon? Are you or is that on hold until COVID is over? If so, which, which one do you want to do? Well, look, I had an entry to New York, and I'm so upset that it's um, being called mm. off. I, of course, I understand, but. Um, I was looking forward to the 50th anniversary run. Mm. Um, it's it's my favourite big city marathon and um, it was just going to be, it was days before the election, which I was hoping to see a good outcome <laughs> as well. <laughs> and, uh, yes, so that's um, that's something I've had to put on the, the back burner, but um, I'm sure I'll, I'll be able to find ways of, of um, using my energy elsewhere and then hopefully when it's back on next year I'll um, even more appreciate the opportunity to do it. Did you ever get a chance to kick the football like you wanted to do when you were five? Uh, well, look, you know, I've, I've, um, <laughs> I've developed my own left-footed kicking style. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I've had two two um, stints of working at the Saints, um, once in those very early days in the in the 80s, but then I had an opportunity to go back and do some work for them in um, 2006 to 2008, which was um, wonderful. Mm-hmm. They still haven't won another premiership, um, so <laughs> I'll, um, I'll go to my grave hopefully one day having seen it. But um, there's, as you said, plenty more challenges still there that need to be addressed. There you go. There's still still a few mountains to climb. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, it was wonderful to meet you a few years ago in the event that we put on with uh, B210, and uh, it's been nice to stay in touch, and I really enjoyed chatting with you today and getting to know you a little bit better, Louise. So thanks for thank taking you. And look, yeah, And, look, thank you very much for what you do for B210. That's just such a great example of, um, you know, the generosity of, of people in promoting sport and recognising that um, – you know, giving people opportunities, both the athletes and the sports scientists and and entourage behind them. And so I, I, I look at what you do and think that's just such a, a, a wonderful protocol and, and um, principle to have others follow. So um, well done for doing it and hopefully there's more people like you out there that are so supportive. Yeah, it was a wonderful project and uh, you guys did some really interesting stuff. So I'm glad I got most of the an- the questions <laughs> answered for, for the gang and I'm sure they all say hello. So uh, thanks for taking the time and you now you can get to bed and get some rest. So thanks for taking the, your, your hour of your time out of your day. A pleasure. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. 
and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.